0: Turn with me in the scripture. Two passages. First of all, Matthew 25. The gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25. Prior to this, in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus has been talking about the end of time and the signs of the times and all those kinds of things. And then we read in verse 31 of Matthew 25, where we pick it up. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? You will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word of the Lord. And then if you would go with me to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter (laughs) 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and your love and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give grief, give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who, who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. The Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism is found on page 881 in the back of your Psalter hymnals if you want to have that open in front of you as well. 881. Brothers and sisters in Christ, a number of years ago, a man by the name of Harold Camping from Oakland to California, who used to be a Christian reformed elder even, until he left the denomination in 1988, predicted that the rapture would happen on May 21, 2011. And based on his calculations, his independent Christian media empire spent millions of dollars Some of it from donations made by followers who quit their jobs and sold all their possessions. He spent millions of dollars to spread the word on more than 5,000 billboards and 20 trucks plastered with the Judgment Day message. And that message he took across the United States and he drove everywhere to send the message that the world needed to be ready For on May 21, 2011, the judgment of God would fall upon us. Well, obviously nothing happened. And Harold Camping ended up apologizing for his false prophecy. And many would consider Harold Camping now deceased, a false prophet and someone not to be believed. Now this talk, this sort of talk about the return of Jesus and the coming judgment day is nothing new. Even earlier, but especially since the early days of the New Testament, there have been all sorts of challenges and calls for people to prepare for the final judgment day. The Thessalonians figured that Jesus was coming back any day and so many of them quit working and they sat on their rooftops waiting for Jesus to come back. And then Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians urging them to get back to work and to instead be alert for the reality of Jesus coming again. But even beyond that, there have been more than 250 recorded dates in which it was said that Jesus is returning, Harold Camping being one of the latest. Some of us, will remember very well all the hype about the end of time as we were approaching the year 2000, remember that? A Canadian Bible teacher by the name of Grant Jeffrey was instrumental in uh, teaching all about the Millennium Meltdown, as he called it. And he predicted large-scale terror and destruction as the Y2K bug was expected to hit computers around the world, signaling the beginning of the end. Of course, nothing happened, as you may remember. And again, many would consider Jeffrey to be a false prophet and discount his material. And yet, you know, in spite of all the false prophets and the strong, the wrong predictions, which have a tendency to kind of make our eyes glaze over and ignore anyone who speaks about the end of time, And in spite of all the scientific theories about how the world will come to be and how it's going to end billions of years from now as the neutrino lab is working out in Sudbury, the church continues to make the confession that Christ will return and the end of the world will come. But even beyond the mere return of Christ, which is quite the confession already. In the midst of a world where tolerance and acceptance of anything and everything seems to be the mantra of the day, and in the midst of a blah form of Christianity where the focus is on the fact that God loves everybody and certainly doesn't wish to do harm to anyone, we make a confession not only about Christ's return, but about what he's coming back to do. Namely, to judge the living and the dead. We say in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven, as we dealt with last Sunday, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's our confession. Judge. Judge. Really? We're going to be held accountable for our life? What's with that? Let's face it, the final judgment is not something we tend to spend much time with these days. All that end of the world judgment talk is for quack. You know, those who walk on the street with a sign, you know, the world is going to end tomorrow, so get ready. All that end-of-the-world judgment talk is for those who really need to get out more. All that end-of-the-world judgment talk is the sort of language that will leave for those who view disasters or illnesses as God's judgment on a section of society. Remember when AIDS was considered to be God's judgment on a gay lifestyle? All the end-of-the-world t- talk and end-of-the-world end of judgment talk is for for TV preachers or folks like the authors of the Left Behind series of books and movies and is played around with by filmmakers who love to contemplate what the end of the world might look like or feel like. You know it as well as I do. There's all kinds of stories out there based on the concept that the world is going to be ending in a bang with lots of fire and disaster and judgment and then there are those who take their planes and do whatever they can to destroy the aliens or to fight back. But surely all that end-of-the-world judgment talk is for entertainment purposes and not for real, is it? Well, the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, in an attempt to be faithful to the scriptures, do, interestingly, do not involve themselves in all sorts of discussions concerning the ins and outs of the coming again of Jesus Christ. What they're concerned with is how Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comforts us. One person asks, what, when is Jesus coming? The next one says, well, what about the trap, rapture and the tribulation and the one world government and our anarchy and so forth? Another asks, what's it gonna be like when Jesus comes back again? And another expresses fear concerning Jesus coming again, and so on. But the Heidelberg Catechism, ever concerned with answering the question concerning our only comfort in life and in death, asks a question not about all those kinds of things, but it asks a question about comfort. And it concerns itself with comfort, with spiritual assurance, because it recognizes that knowing the Lord Jesus and knowing we belong to him is of utmost importance in a world filled with no comfort and in a world that tends to have very little hope or little direction for the future. It asks this question about comfort because really many of the questions about how it's going to happen and what's going to take place when and who's doing what to whom and all those kinds of things are questions that we really in some can't answer. So as the authors ask the question number 52 about the judgment at the end of time, they take a number of things for granted that we should note. And the first thing that the authors take for granted as unsurpassed truth is that Jesus Christ will return. And no matter what we think about the end of time or how we think it's all going to happen or what the sequence is going to be or whatever, this is one point upon which all Christians will agree. Jesus Christ will come again. Of course, the whole Bible is filled with reference to Jesus' second coming. In fact, ultimately, the whole Bible has the focus of Jesus coming again, and it speaks of the end of history as we know it, as being on the day of Jesus' return, when Jesus will come and make all things new. What a day that will be Much of the passion of the Old Testament believers came from their expectation of the coming Messiah. And now that Jesus has come, has died, has gained the victory, has ascended, and now rules, much of our passion ought to be based upon the fact that Jesus is coming again. We're in the Advent season, folks, and we should be singing Advent songs all the time. Interestingly, John prayed earnestly in the early church in the book of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus, come! It makes me wonder how passionate I am about Christ's return. How passionate are you? In some ways, you know, it's really not surprising that when Christians are rather blasé about the whole event, After all, it's been now some 2,000 years since Jesus promised he would return. 2,000 years, that's a long time to wait for something, especially when we want everything just, you know, like this, instantly. After that long, after 2,000 years of waiting for something to happen, something to take place, for Jesus to come back, one can hardly be expected to sit at the edge of his or her chair in eager anticipation. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? That we lose interest or intensity is a very human thing. The people of Israel had to wait for Moses to return with the law of God, but because he took so long, at least in their estimation, they became restless, and they demanded that a God be built whom they could see. Eyes and hearts turned away from heaven to the earth and to the things of the day. But it is a fact that when the vision and the expectation is gone, when the excitement dies concerning some expected event, that one's world and future tends to become rather small. When we're not looking to the future, when we're not looking for something to happen, when we're not focused on the things of the Lord, we tend to involve ourselves and busy ourselves with all the little things of life. But just evaluate your own life in this sense. When we no longer are living in anticipation of anything, then then we become the center of the whole world. And the things that we do, many of them don't have much lasting value. There's a little poem about this by Alfred Lukak. Great little poem. Some of you know it. If your nose is close to the grindstone rough and you hold it down there long enough, In time, you'll say, there's no such thing as brooks that babble and birds that sing. These three will all your world compose, just you, the stone, and your old nose. Cute poem, serious message. That's the way millions of people live and die, also people who sit in the pew week after week. There are so many people who are just earthbound creatures. They're always looking down at the ground in which they're going to be buried. Their lives are pointed at things of this world, getting the things of this world. They have no hope beyond the immediate, really. They live for today, perhaps the weekend. Can't wait to get off, spend time with others. Even their religion, that is if they have one, is not designed to lift their eyes to the one sitting on the throne, but is designed to primarily show them how to make the most of their lives here on Earth. It's designed to give them a pat on the back, encourage them to do their best, encourage them to be kind and to be loving. Such humanistic lifestyles, such self-centered lifestyles, while making the world very small, Ultimately, will be and are dead-ended. But our Lord Jesus gives us quite a different perspective on the world and on life. A much larger, a much more grandiose perspective. Think of what we heard from Colossians 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. You died and were raised with Christ. Rather than having our eyes downcast and rather than focusing on the things of this world, which results only in our only seeing ourselves and our own little world, we are to be marching with our heads held up. The catechism even says that. Watching the clouds, Waiting for his return. He is coming back. Of course, that doesn't mean that we should be like the disciples following Jesus' ascension who just stood there on the the mountain, glaring into heaven, waiting for him to return. But it means that we ought to be living with a forward perspective with the motivation in our lives that what we are doing is part and parcel of the kingdom that's going to come in all its fullness motivated by the fact that jesus who is sitting on the throne now and ruling now is coming again that's what motivated the early church they were aware that they were part of a history which was not going around in circles not just getting anywhere but they were part of a history that was moving forward to a grand climax, namely the day of Jesus' glorious return as the judge of heaven and earth. The fact that he is coming again is a given. No problem there. He will appear on the clouds of heaven. And it's with that truth in mind that the catechism adds, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await Jesus coming. In all my distress and persecution, what is that referred to? By the time of the writing of this document, people were being burned at the stake and persecuted for their faith. It was the time of the Reformation, a time of great upheaval in the church. In the midst of all that taught the catechism a believer does not need to be downcast, filled with hopelessness, totally wrapped up in his own little world. A Christian can look up past the present present into the future as Stephen did when he was being stoned. I see heaven open and the Son of Man seated on the throne. A Christian can look up and see, that Jesus, see Jesus and therefore know that life has meaning and life has a purpose which is much more grandiose than anything we could possibly experience or see now in this world. The writers may also have been referring to what was mentioned in Matthew 24, a chapter in which the end of time is being discussed. There it's mentioned in the last days there's going to be much tribulation. Things will get so bad, says the Bible, that as Mark puts it in chapter 13, verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect he has, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. In the midst of such a life of terror, turmoil, uncertainty, the truth that Jesus will return again stands out as a charter for life. For in the midst of a pessimistic world, folks, in which people perceive only terrorism and racism and intolerance and economic bankruptcy and moral decay, decay and climate change, a weary old age, nothing worthwhile. The Christian has a different perspective. The Christian has hope and can look to the heavens with confidence as he or she awaits the return of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is the Catechism doesn't concern itself with any details of the second coming other than to assume and state that Jesus will come again. And his returning is, of course, as we confess, for a specific purpose, namely to judge the living and the the dead. That judgment accompanying his return is a definitive demonstration to all people of his lordship. For he will be revealed as the Lord of creation, the King of glory. When he comes, as Philippians puts it, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will confess it. I will confess it. All the human race will confess it. And then Jesus will be the judge taking his place on the judgment seat. And the result of what happens next will be This is what the bible tells us ecstasy for some and pure terror for others matthew 25 the portion we read earlier gives us a picture in the form of a parable of what will happen as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goat so jesus will separate believers from unbelievers what's so interesting to me always is that we will not be questioned apparently so much about our personal piety how How many times have you prayed? How many times have you read the Bible or attended church? But we're going to be questioned as to how we have lived out our faith, the fruits of our faith. What good works have come from your faith? A faith which is bolstered by your personal and communal involvement with the Lord who gave his life for you. So he died for you. You believe that. What do you do with it? What are you doing with it? living as if. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference at all. It's got to make a difference. Jesus will judge people by their fruits. And there are only two groups of people before him, which is always so interesting too. Those who have produced and those who have not produced. The catechism calls the two groups God's enemies and his chosen ones. There's no neutral, middle-of-the-road third group. Revelation talks about that, too. You're hot or you're cold. first group is pictured as being surprised. These are the ones who have obeyed God and who have ministered, that is, they have given of themselves to others. Jesus said that t- will say to these, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. All his chosen ones, says the confession, he will take along with him into the joy and the glory of heaven. The second group is also pictured as being surprised. Their record shows some good works, but perhaps all done for personal gain. None done for the least of these in Jesus' name. And Jesus will say to these Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And that's not a state of mind, by the way. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul in Thessalonians. They will be punished with the everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. There are those who cannot accept the fact that God punishes and condemns for all eternity. And it is tough to accept what kind of a God is that. But he's a just God. And there's no getting away from it, even though we want to. So we confess all his enemies and mine. God's enemies are our enemies. He will condemn to everlasting punishment. That's tough. It's tough to hear. It's tough to think about. Tough to contemplate. But what a day that will be. Christ descending in all his glory to judge the nations. People will suddenly be face to face with the creator whether they have believed in him or not. Now, when we think of the final judgment day, perhaps we tend to do so with some fear and hesitation, particularly if you put it in the context of some of these passages. Maybe that's why we can't get so excited or anxious about the return of Christ. I have known Christians who have questioned their personal salvation. What side will I be on? The sheep or the goats? The right or the left? The question we can also ask is, are God's enemies our enemies? Or are we so tied up with the world we can't make the distinction anymore? Am I indeed the salt of the earth? Have I done enough for the least of these? My sins are so great, I don't stand a chance. When I think about the majesty of God and my unworthiness, it scares me to think that I'll have to face him, the great judge, the almighty God. He will know, he will know all that I have said and all that I have thought and all that I have done. There's fear, true fear on the part of people when they think about the final judgment day, when they think about what's gonna happen then. And in the light of such questions and hesitations, and they can be so very real, and of course they're real, and they're very human, doesn't question 52 strike you as rather odd, perhaps out of touch with human fears? How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead? Comfort you. Comfort me? What possible comfort could there be in having to face God, the judge, who knows my whole life? I'm guilty. What possible comfort could there be? But again, the writers make an assumption. They assume that the Christian is not fearful of the Judgment Day, but finds comfort in Judgment Day. Here again, as elsewhere in this beautiful document, the question is not so much one of dogma as it prompts a profession of faith. This is a very, very personal question. So Notice it's in the first person singular. How does it comfort you? And your standing with the Lord will determine the outcome of your answer. Well, how does the fact of Jesus' return comfort us? We've actually already answered that. First of all, we can know that our time on earth is not dead-ended. The grave is not the end. There is no empty eternity for the believer for it's all headed in the direction of Jesus coming again and he will come, that was a given, remember? But even more importantly, the Christian knows that the one who comes as judge over all mankind is the very one who's already stood trial in our place And remove the curse from us Jesus Christ in his death took upon his shoulders our sins and he became the curse for us so that we might be free and so now as we come before the throne the judge Jesus will recognize us and recognize the fact that the price has already been paid for our sins There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Bible and the Catechism teach us that we have nothing to fear. It's by grace that we stand on Jesus' right hand on that day. And that's why Christ's return, whenever it may be, can be of comfort to us. Nowhere are we told That as we near the end of time, and as tribulation comes or as persecution comes, that we don't have to go through it. Of course we will. But our comfort is that in the distress and the persecution, we can confidently await for the God of salvation because we know that we're not our own. But we belong body and soul in life and in death in good times, and in persecution, and amongst tri- in the midst of tribulation, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're His, that's our identity. And He has removed the curse from us, and He has set us free. That is, and can be, our comfort as the final ju- judgment day approaches, or as death approaches, and as we will soon be before the judge. As to when he comes, who knows? He'll come unexpectedly. But those who are in Christ will hear him say, Come, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Amen.